what would be really great is, especially with women in politics around the world, to demonstrate how active they were using Twitter data before they received threats and then how active they were after to quantify a chilling effect. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, my guest is Shauna Dillavu. Shauna is a security innovator and expert. She's dedicated her career to focusing on how to make shared spaces, both online spaces and offline, safer and less hostile for women. Shauna and I discuss how technology has, has really taken off without any consideration for making these spaces welcoming and safe. We also talk about the unique security risks that women face when they have public profiles, and especially when those women choose to run for office. Lastly, we talk about some of our own experiences working in technology and how tech companies continue to craft products and policies that have huge gaps in relation to how they protect marginalized groups online. Here's my conversation with Shauna Dillavu. Shauna Dillavu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you and I, we talk about our careers in technology back in the day, at least for me, it was back in the day because I've been in this business for a long time. You know, and I don't remember... I don't remember things being this way for women online with all of the harassment. I mean, I can remember what a modem sounds like. So that just tells you how long I've been around. But um, I don't remember in the very beginning, you know, when people were starting to get used to browsers and, you know, before there was this proliferation of of social media, the climate being like this for women online. Has it always been this hostile? I don't. You well. I mean, okay, online. I mean, has the patriarchy always existed? Yeah, sure. But on the internet, I think we saw something really different in the beginning. You know, there were more women who were programming up until the 80s when that number fell off um, and is lower now than it was 30 years ago. So there were women involved in, in building technology. The internet is a space. You hear all these folks, especially folks who remember what dial-up sounds like. I'm one of them too. Talk about the internet. As like a really like utopic experiment, right? Like it was a time when people just got along and shared information and kids who were weird growing up in little towns in Iowa, for example, felt like they could find their community and they weren't alone. And it was this great sort of connective human experience, right? You could find just folks interested in the strangest things that you found so fascinating. Maybe we would have found this side of humanity replicating itself on the internet as it proliferated just generally. But I think social media sped that up in really nasty ways. And And as we discussed at some point before, part of the issue is that these social media platforms were built by dudes, all (laughs) dudes, essentially, really, though, right, who like had this like move fast and break things mentality and didn't think about how breaking those things would be like breaking people, you know, like really harming people, because a lot of what these tools do is not think through any kind of threat assessment for their user. They don't take any responsibility. They don't want to, you know. And that lack of accountability at like the most generous levels, what I could call it, but like that arrogance really isn't useful. And what it has created is a space for aggression to thrive. And that's what we see on the internet today. It is just an aggressive place. It just feels like you always have to be funnier or meaner or more snappy or like you have to have a better photo of whatever food thing you're eating and living like, you know, a better life than everybody else. And it just feels like it's this ratcheting up. It's competitive, almost aggression on a regular basis. It's not a very happy place to be. It's certainly not a utopia. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I remember that. I feel the same way. And I think um, I grew up in a small town too, in in Memphis, in Tennessee. Mm. And I connect with that feeling that you had. For me, the internet was a connection to bigger places. Mm. You know, I kind of, before, you know, there was television and and cable and and TV. (laughs) And then when the internet came, I was just like, whoa, you know, and maybe I wouldn't be in Seattle had I not had the internet to see what it was like here, right? I remember going and checking out restaurants, you know, in Seattle or, you know, across the country and say, that's where I want to live. Um, yeah. And do you know that there are 2.1 million people who still use dial-up? Just thought I in the United that. States. I don't know. It's not so- surprising. <laughs> That's not surprising in the slightest. You know, like I think it's the number is like sixty percent of the U.S. population, maybe more now, seventy that has a smartphone. Like I think we take for granted that we all operate on laptops and have a smartphone and an eye something and then like a watch and like all the fancy stuff. When in reality, a lot of people don't have a computer. Yeah. Yeah, Some people and, and have just jumped right to mobile. And even the folks on mobile may not be working on, on a smartphone platform, certainly not one that's like on a contract basis. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like they're not on an iPhone because that's an $800 phone that you have to switch out yeah, every exactly. two years. Yeah, so, well, like, Not everybody can afford that. I'm behind. Uh, he said two years. Jeez. Me too. I try to stretch it out as long as possible. But you can tell when you hit that two year mark. And you're like, God, this is falling apart. Thanks a lot, Apple. <laughs> yeah, but so it doesn't surprise me that the increase in hostility has has happened alongside the increased popularity of social media. Yeah. That does not surprise me at all. I mean, social media kind of ruins a lot of things. Kind of. But, <laughs> but it, so I have a confession. I have not been... You know, I'm a woman of color. I am a public feminist, I guess. And I have not experienced the level of online harassment that I've heard from other people. Yeah. And I don't know why I've, that's eluded me. And I'm happy about that. I'm just curious. Can you describe for some people who just aren't aware, what are some of the experiences that women have online? Well, I mean, there's the famous cases, right? Of like Adria Richards, who was at a conference, a, Py- a Python conference, you know, the coding language Python, who um, the men behind her were making jokes about dongles. And she was like, stop it. Please stop. Stop it. Knock it off. You guys, it's not funny. And then finally snapped a picture of them and tweeted it. And this was after she tried to report through several different channels at the conference that this was happening. And of course, then that public tweet got her fired. I mean, it got this guy fired from his company, um, which she said she didn't want. But then, you know, the worst part about her being fired was that it wasn't that her company necessarily wanted to fire her. It was that they were pressured by online trolls. So a number of people threatening to dox the C-suite, the leadership of Zendesk, where she was working. And if they didn't publicly fire her within a certain amount of time, and they caved to that. Wow. That's a part of the story that doesn't often get told. Because Adria is a programmer. She's like a person who just wants to do her job. She doesn't want to have to be a soldier in this fight necessarily, right? That's the thing you kind of hear from a lot of these women. Um, Anita Sarkeesian is a good friend of mine. And the sort of things that she's like endured... And the same with Zoe Quinn, the women who were like targeted by Gamergate. The, the tactics are, are are too many and too disgusting to name, but I can give you a couple of the things that I've seen, say, in like the Reddit and 4chan spaces. So they would probably dox you. And doxing means that they would do searches of all of these data broker and people search sites, and there are dozens of them, that will list your name, your address, your former addresses, any telephone numbers and emails associated with you, family names, so like your brothers and sisters, your parents, maybe your grandparents, aunt and uncles. And so they would publish that information in some public forum. And so folks would start 
sending you Bibles, sending you Qurans, sending people to your door, sending you bunches yeah, yeah. of pizzas, which doesn't feel super threatening, except that the message is clearly, we know where you live, right? So that happens. Right. In the case of Adria, folks still call her and threaten her all the time, call her and call her racial slurs, call her slut, bitch, whore, you know, all sorts of the typical sort of nasty things that we say to women only. And then you know, breathe heavily into the phone or threaten her or do any number of things to be um, terrible to her. And it was at the Women's March in D.C. last winter. I was at a table with Jacqueline Friedman, who's also received, when she was the executive director of WHAM, Women Action in the Media, has received plenty of this kind of abuse. Soraya Shmali, who's been doxxed and, like, at this point just doesn't care. Um, she's a writer and well-known and then Anita, we were sitting at a table and this young woman walks up to us and she's like, does anyone ever tell you you look like Anita Sarkeesian? And Anita's like, yeah, I get that. And, Jack, and we laugh. And then Jacqueline's yeah. like, it's because she is. Oh. And the young woman said, you know, I really appreciate it. I'm, in, I'm, I'm a gamer online and people come after me and they threaten me and they find my phone number, my email address and threaten me. They send me nasty pictures. Like they send my head on other people's bodies. Like they're trying to hurt me, you know, like in violent situations situations. That happens to folks, women who aren't necessarily public, just in sort of male spaces. And then I think about another colleague, Emily Linden, who runs the Unslut Project. And just a simple fact that she called the project Unslut, that has slut, I think, in the name, that she talks <laughs> about slut shaming. Um, yeah. She's been targeted by like Tucker Carlson and his sort of crony peoples, and so has had her face pasted onto like nasty YouTube videos. Fortunately, with YouTube, you know, a solution seems to work to say, this is my face, it's my intellectual property, you're using it without my consent. And they respect that part of the law and remove it. But tactics like focusing on you in your home or at your home number or at your email address, you know, places that feel like very intimate and very close to you. Yeah. And then you'll see them do sort of public shaming stuff, the doxing, especially sharing your details. I think generally hoping that people can hack your email and get in and publish that. But I don't know that these guys have that level of savvy for the most part. Thank goodness. It's just general sort of thuggish intimidation and bad Photoshop. Yeah. When you were describing that, I'm just trying to think before the internet. I mean, I know that these hostilities obviously existed, but like what kind of outlet that they use? Did they send, you know, letters? <laughs> yeah, right. Like think about when that when Jody Foster had a stalker. I mean, he would show up. So you could like, I guess, hire a bodyguard or, you know, carry a weapon, you know, like a, an, I don't know, a knife or learn some like self-defense or, you know, that was kind of your threat model. That was like your threat assessment. Or yeah, I'd send a letter, <laughs> make a mean phone call. <laughs> and a really mean postcard. <laughs> yeah. If you didn't have, it's so nice to laugh about this. If you didn't have like caller ID, I'm sure it could be terrifying. Prior to the internet, you didn't see this scale. These folks mobilize like a military. Zoe has described, Zoe Quinn has described in her book, Crash Override, just how they mobilize, just how they will tag different tweets of women who transgress, do things they're not supposed to. I mean, whatever the hell that means to whomever on whatever day, right? So you could never like... Right, right. You could never troll-proof yourself because you don't know what's going to set them off. Yeah. So they will, you know, tag different things with insider like keyword tags and then different groups mobilize. And they just kind of swarm. 
swarm on whoever the targeted person is, right? Yeah. So if you've got somebody with a couple hundred thousand followers who gets angry with you, and this is why Milo Yiannopoulos was finally kicked off of Twitter is because he kept using his following to mobilize against people he just didn't like or who disagreed with him yeah. or who were fat, frankly. It's just like, how, how dare you exist if you're not beautiful to me? Yeah. Um, yeah. Lindy West, he does this, this American Life. They did a piece on her, but she writes about this in Shrill as well. And in a lot of her writing where it's like, I, I exist and that's a problem for people. It's enough for this guy to create a Twitter handle in the name of my father and use this Twitter handle to like talk about how disappointed my father must have been in me when he, you know, her, her father had just died. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing that she got to confront him. But you don't have to be a public woman like that woman who came to us at that brunch table. You know, she's just like, I'm on Twitch and that's enough. Like I just game there and I win. And that's enough of a transgression. So for for people who aren't familiar, can you give a short, just a short rundown of what Gamergate was? Because that comes up a lot when we talk about, you know, online harassment and everyone isn't familiar with that. Sure. There's what's reported and there's what really happened. And it got really hard to report on this, I think, because anytime you'd mention it, you know, the trolls would come after you and your outlet. So it wasn't a safe thing to really report on. What happened was Zoe Quinn was dating this guy, they broke up and he got mad. And he wrote a screed, he wrote like a, you know, like, I guess a long, hateful message about it, and had a lot of online followers, and they went after her. Wow. That's really it, right? Like, here is this woman who was just doing her business, and this guy, like, didn't like her. And then it, it became a story. It became a thing around women in gaming. Zoe happens to be a game developer, and she's created a number of really great games, and she still does. Um, but the hate towards women in a mostly male space is really what happened then. So some of the highlights are that Brianna Wu in, and so I think was at the time in Massachusetts in the Boston area, um, Brianna Wu was also there. So their representative, Catherine Clark, has gotten involved. Catherine Clark is a U.S. congresswoman from Massachusetts who was swatted in the middle of the night when she and her family were sleeping. U.S. congresswoman. Ridiculous. Anyway, so Brianna is another gamer. For some reason, became a focus. And that meant that she was also doxxed and she and her husband had to leave their home and hide because people kept threatening to come there to rape and kill her. Um, Zoe, I think had to move a number of times because again, people kept like finding her phone number or finding her address and coming at her and saying they were going to do these harmful things to her. But that was, I think for me anyway, the turning point, like Anita went to speak, she went to speak at a college campus and she lands in the city to go and speak and they call and they say, we've received credible threats that someone will come here and hurt you. And she's like, oh, well, what can you do about the security? And they're like, well, as you know, this is a right to carry state. She's like, well, then I can't speak there if you can't guarantee my safety. Wow. Yeah. So for some reason, women in gaming became the focus when it really just was this guy who had been jilted, who couldn't handle rejection, sending his followers after his ex. And creating an unsafe yeah. space for women, you know, and a blueprint for making a space as unsafe for women all around the Internet, all around the world. Right. That's really important. He created a blueprint, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was an escalation after that. Oh, my God. Yeah. I met Anita in 2014, in late 2014, right after a lot of this had really taken place. These women have all experienced severe trauma. Like, they have been refugees to an extent. 
um, to liken it to something that maybe more folks would understand. They're not safe anywhere that they go. They're seeking asylum. They're trying to find a safe space. And what makes everything unsafe is that the internet is unsafe and it's everywhere. Yeah. So trying to find a safe space when you don't know, you can't go home. Your parents yeah. are in their home maybe and their address has been their address for 20 years. So it's all over those people search sites. Where do you go? With what money? How do you move? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I always caution women against dating InfoSec guys for that reason. Information security guys can always find you. Oh, really? <laughs> well, well, if you work in a technology company, which which group is safe? Is it marketing? Should you date in marketing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe it's just my marketing people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, mercy. You know, yeah. seriously, people, I think people should understand, and I think everybody understands this now, that, you know, it happens, it goes offline, and people really aren't safe when you think of what happened with Pizzagate. Yo. Like, that was really scary. It was right up the street from where I live. I was just really? having, yeah, just having coffee with a friend who lives up there with his family. And I was like, what was that like for your family? Because I'm certain you guys got pizza. Who doesn't get pizza from that place? And he's like, right. yeah, no, it, was, it felt like we didn't know when, you know, or who else was coming or where else they would be or why that place. It was just ludicrous. So, you know, I think part of the problem is that, you know, speaking of the, the historical arc of technology and social media and all of these companies, right? Like I've, I've kind of seen this grow, you know, over the past, you know, decade or so. Yeah. Um, part of the problem is, is I think that companies companies did not and could not anticipate the environment that we have right now. So, you know, engineers were being, they were in college at the time, you know, engineers who are using, who, who built the technology that we use now. Mm-hmm. No one was really prepared for this climate and this environment. So it isn't really built into their user management infrastructure. It isn't built in at all, you know, and it isn't built into the yeah. company structure. Is that is that fair to say? I mean, I think that's something that you'd know better than me, but it doesn't. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Having been inside a big um, tech company for a long time, I don't think, I don't, from my experience, no, because anytime we speak to one of these social media platforms, and I mean, you could name any one of them, and the story is the same. We might speak to their safety people. We might speak to their global safety people. We might speak to their policy people. But none of those folks have any actual power when it comes to how the company does any kind of business. None of those folks have any influence or sway over how the platform was built or how it will be iterated. In fact, I feel like every time I see Facebook roll out a change, I'm like, you clearly didn't run this past your security people. I would never use you as a dating service. You've got to be kidding me. Secondly, like I remember, you know, and it feels like every time Twitter rolls out a security fix, I'm like, who is this securing? Like this is yeah. just, and then they immediately have to roll it back in within a week because they clearly didn't do any kind of threat assessment except for themselves. Like they're not thinking about users. So it may have been, and frankly, in a company like a Facebook, not to continue picking on them, but I'm happy to pick on the both of them (laughs) the rest of the day. um, In a company like Facebook that has never reorganized, that has a founder CEO, I'm not entirely sure we see any kind of reflection internally built into the culture of the organization. No. The little bit of time I've spent at Google, it felt the same way. <laughs> like yeah. the, I guess the adage is like what do you do if Sergey Brin brings his computer, you know, this is years ago, right? If he brings his computer to the help desk. And I guess the answer is you fix Sergey Brin's computer. It doesn't matter who else is standing in line or who's there or what everybody else is doing. You have to drop what you're doing and yes. help him. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. I just don't 
think that is probably a corporate cultural model that suits a platform built for 2 billion people or several billion people. You know what I mean? Like it works in a hierarchy, in a patriarchy, and for a kind of man that needs to have his ego stroked and a corporation that can support that, right? Yeah. Y'all make a bunch of money. You have a bunch of dudes that are your shareholders. You have a bunch of dudes who are your VCs. Like you all know how to play this game together. But if you bring in anybody else or you attempt to bring in anybody else, it's not going to work for them. And I think that's what we're running into. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you remind me of an anecdote. And, and you know, because we've talked before about this, I've been in technology my whole career, and I live around people, you know, who are in these, you know, I live around Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Amazon. And of course, and so you're right about that culture. But this anecdote, I have to tell you, you just reminded me I was in a meeting once. And one of the teams I was on, it was some kind of operational team, they all run together. They're all the teams are like, I can't remember which one. But some executive and so we dealt with, you know, big issues, right? Like maybe we had some software at a police department or some software at an airline company. And this executive, an executive for the team, his kid over the weekend had trouble downloading a game. The team dropped everything. Gotta be kidding. (laughs) And it became the hottest issue for like the next three days. And and this was probably a clue that I needed to leave because I was in this climate. No one would question this stuff. And and I would just say like, what the hell? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me? I didn't think I made a joke. I was like, you know, my kid had some trouble (laughs) over the weekend too. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> I was not I, I was not very popular. You're so. a woman, Jen. So you need to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but you know you, you're right. I mean this this whole thing about protecting women online and privacy and you yeah. know I just don't think that there is a space in these technology companies that's dedicated for that. Like I oh, in, in my no. experience, you know, and it's not no. an it's not an engineering problem, it's not a marketing problem, and it's not no. purely a privacy issue. No. Nope. So th- there is no companies have not created a space to address no, this. They're not interested. Yeah. As long as their numbers keep growing because they keep expanding around the globe, like they don't care. They don't care. And I can't tell you the number of times we've tried to I've tried to talk to them, my colleagues who've tried to talk to them. We brought cases to them. They just don't want to hear it. It's a pain in their ass. Yeah. Because they're making money, don't forget, off of this abuse. Yeah. Everything that we create for them, all of us minions, the two billion of us on Facebook's platform, Every piece of content we create makes them money. Yeah. So why would they ever rest- I mean, Twitter talked about how it didn't get rid of those millions of users who were trolls until after the election when they were kind of forced to because they looked like shit about it. Yeah. Like, they were making money off that content. That's gross. Yeah. <laughs> but they're fine with it because it's their bottom line. Yeah. I would also argue they're fine with it because they don't believe women. Yeah. We're hysterical. it's just in our heads it's just not that big of a deal just turn it off like you don't have to get online yeah that's why representation matters (laughs) (laughs) yes i mean i just keep saying that and you know it sounds like a cliche but you know in every yeah 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 not in this situation if there aren't women at the top then who's speaking for them yeah i mean we're 51 percent of the u.s population slightly more in the globe and like you want to build a global tool with all essentially white men running it? Doesn't that feel strange? Yeah. Like, how can you possibly be empathetic enough to understand everyone's experience in the world? I don't imagine you are. Right. So when you go to these companies, you said they aren't very receptive, right? And no, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I mean, so why, I guess, first of all, why do they want you? <laughs> like, I mean, how do they, Talk to how us. do they reconcile yeah. the fact that they've invited you to come and then, but they're not receptive to your message? 
Well, I think we've stopped going. I think a lot of women and, and I think a lot of us have stopped yeah. trying to show up because they're not useful. Yeah. Some folks get money. You know, they're running nonprofits and they get partnership money from these organizations and that's useful. And, and in, in large part, some of them, I, you know, my colleague Nikat Dad, who's a world famous human rights activist based in Pakistan, runs a cyber harassment hotline. We brought it to Facebook because it was largely women in Pakistan and more conservative parts of the country. If they had a Facebook profile, it was enough for their brothers or fathers or whomever to honor kill them if they were found out. And there were a couple of blackmail rings that were happening in Peshawar. And so Nikat was like, hey, Facebook, you need to take this down ASAP. And she'd done this enough times that they had offered her this sort of fast track. So when we went to meet with the global head of safety at Facebook, the woman just kept asking Nika and her team to keep doing this pro bono. And I was like, do you not feel disgusting saying this to this brown woman who lives in Pakistan to keep doing this labor for you for free? <laughs> and the woman really didn't. She, yeah, obviously felt really bad when I pointed that out to her. But it took them a couple of years to show up with any kind of funding. They don't have much of an incentive unless they don't want to look like jerks. And if Nikat's not in the news in the United States making a big fuss, yeah. what's their incentive? Right. I don't mean to sound so cynical. It's just been years of this with them. We need you to stay in the fight, though, Shauna. <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, girl. I know. I know. Okay. So speaking of, you know, women of color. Yes. Do you find, because I, I you know, I follow these threads online a lot, and there seems to be this idea that there are certain groups of women, women obviously are greater targets, but there are certain groups of women, subgroups, who are targeted more than others. Absolutely. I would say the virility of an attack against a brown or black woman, the length and the virility is going to be, and like, again, the transgression in air quotes, like what she had to do to merit that is like the bar is so much lower and the length of the attack would be increased. I'm not saying white women don't get attacked online. No, they, they do, do. yeah. It, I don't know if there's proportionality. And and if that's just in the United States, my guess is, though, anecdotally, yeah, the attacks are going to be far worse yeah. for far less provocation. But folks self-select to be on that platform because it's pretty well known as a toxic platform. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if you look at Facebook, it's really difficult to gather data. It's really easy to gather it if you build like Farmville or some other app. It's not easy in the same way to look at trends because of the nature of the platform, because they don't sell data that way for whatever reason. I'm starting a project around that with violence against women in politics around the world. Okay. Looking at the chilling effect before and after, you know, abuse is reported. But they're again, only on Twitter because it's just difficult to monitor. The attack isn't just ever going to be on one platform. Yeah. It's going to be everywhere across platforms and in your home and on your home device and maybe potentially physically in your home. And the other thing that occurs to me, both around the violence against women in politics and everything else I've read about online harassment, the issue is that women often don't know what they're experiencing as harassment or abuse or violence. Right. Like that's just part of being a woman, right? Right. right. And then everything I've read for my book around bullying is that boys proportionally, I mean, almost equally to girls, just slightly less than girls, will report harassment or bullying online. But what they call harassment or bullying is name calling. And what girls at that age call harassment or bullying is like threats. I see. Frankly, how thick your skin is. So my guess is growing up brown or black in the United States and a woman and any other, if you want to throw another intersectional identity on top of that, you probably have thicker skin than anybody else. And yet you're used to it. So you have like a level of like um, 
tolerance built up, to use a fun word there, right? So you may not even recognize the abuse that it is that you're seeing and that, and that it's as heinous and virulent as it is. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. So to talk about my, my favorite um, topic, politics. Well, first of all, what's your project, mm-hmm. the project that you're working on? You just mentioned that. So it would be to create a plugin for a browser that would subtly underline any terms of abuse that have been created. So if you can tell from what I'm describing, like the long pole is going to be dictionaries of terms of abuse that are crowdsourced and they will be in a variety of languages. So then say I pull up like a Facebook message on my browser page, I might see underlines under certain terms and words. And what then would happen is that I'd be prompted to take a screenshot to document it. And I could submit that screenshot to through some secured means to us, to the researchers. But the idea is we develop these libraries of abuse terms, and then we demonstrate how they're used and how often they're used. And then we go to these platforms with irrefutable evidence that this is happening. What would be really great is, especially with women in politics around the world, to demonstrate how active they were using Twitter data before they received threats, and then how active they were after, to quantify in a way that is not something I could do as a non-data, non-statistics person, quantify a chilling effect. That becomes a huge problem because it's not a democracy if 50% of the population can't be part of it. It's not a democracy. I'm from Iowa. When Kim Weaver left her race, a race, mind you, that she'd run the year before against Steve King in 2016, had just lost and was running again in 2017 to beat him in 2018. So she'd just finished a race against him. And suddenly now in 2017, after the election of Trump and the and Charlottesville, she gets run out of her race, threatened with her, you know, with rape and with her life and the rest of it and has to leave her race. And those weren't her constituents in Iowa. I'm from Iowa. I cannot believe they were from there. Right. That's not a situation where we any longer can call ourselves a democracy. And in those countries in the world where this is happening, inside of a party, at a polling place, you know, as you're voting, if you're running for office, we're not living in a democracy any longer. Again, if 50% of the population cannot participate. Right. You know, that's another thing where data might be useful. And I was curious as to, because record-breaking numbers of women have been running. Also, women are dropping out. I don't know if that's being tracked. And also the reasons why they're dropping out, like how many women have left races because they've been harassed? That's my concern. So yeah, at this stage, I'm doing trainings around security for women and not just for them as candidates, but for their campaigns, because the campaign will also sustain abuse, right? Like it's your intern or it's like your young person who's really fired up about politics, getting involved, answering those phone calls or having to deal with those nasty tweets. It's like how to manage it in a way that both the politician or the candidate can still engage. Right. Because they have to be able to engage, right? Those are the rules of the road right now and be connected to their constituency, but still be safe. And that is going to have to change. I mean, look at Gabby Giffords, Joe Cox. The message is clear, right? Like if you're going to do this, you're a double hero because you're not only going to get the regular scrutiny of any kind of political candidate, you're also going to get the double scrutiny of being a woman and physically, quote unquote, inferior, right? We can always get you physically if we can't get you any other way. Right. In Hillary, the media was really hard on Hillary, like her or don't. Um, and particularly I think about how often videos of her and her daughter, Chelsea, were made and uploaded to Pornhub during her campaign cycle. So porn videos with Hillary and Chelsea's faces pasted onto the bodies. 
were pretty common. That's how we approach women in leadership in this country. Joe Cox and the women who received a lot of the threats in the UK, a lot of that garbage was coming from American trolls. Wow. It was traced back here. And so a question for you, this is kind of a controversial question. Do you think that it's more prevalent on one side of the aisle than the other? Right? Because I only see this from the liberal democratic side. I would say, you know, it's easy to blame Republicans because you see so many of them in the media threatening their female counterparts. Yeah. Um, But I don't think that it's just them because, you know, you see women doing this too to other women. And I think when you're dealing with a kind of a sickness, which I feel like, you know, you've got this sort of internalized misogyny in all of us growing up in this system in which like we're so protective of men and their feelings and, and white men and their feelings. It's, I don't think, I don't think it's any one kind of person. You know, I find the worst offender to be that progressive dude who calls himself a feminist. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> you can put the label on yourself, but if you're not going to walk the talk, like it's, you're just, you're worse. At least I know no, what I'm yeah, getting right. with like, a Newt Gingrich, you know what I mean? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, specifically from the left, there was a great deal of hostility towards towards Hillary Clinton in the 2016 cycle. I mean, it's always been there from the right. But, you know, during the primary, and especially after she clinched the nomination, just kind of ratcheted up the hostility from from those segments on the left. And, you know, honestly, it wasn't just towards towards Hillary, but it was for any woman or any constituent who supported her. It was it was just a really nasty climate for women on the left. Oh, my God. But that sense of entitlement, that like arrogance, that like hurt, fragile ego and yeah. the lack of being able to be rejected. Not unlike Zoe Quinn's like former paramour, who I will not name. He doesn't need that space, <laughs> but you you're jilted. And so how you handle it is to be abusive to women. Congratulations. You're not much of a progressive. I I do think that all of these things need to be tracked. I mean, for the simple fact that if people are being driven out of driven away from governing or anything, any industry really, because of gender or race, um, you know, I mean, that's really a civil rights violation. So absolutely. You know, I mean, I think that this needs to be tracked by someone anyway. Yeah. I would hope that there are folks who are tracking it, and I just don't know. There probably are not. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to guess. Ah, I'm going to go on a limb. Ah, no, seriously. No, I mean, right. n- no one's tracking this. Yeah. So for your training, what is just kind of in a nutshell, what's the first or the most important thing that you tell candidates about, you know, having a safe experience? Yeah, I know it sounds really lame, but it generally comes down to having strong passwords and using two-factor authentication. Really? Just, yeah, to make sure that all your accounts are safe. I would say most folks don't have a budget for oppo, for opposition research, but I would definitely search for yourself on all those people search sites. Yeah. You probably are going to disclose your address anyway. So make sure that if you do that, you know, if people can find you and know where you live, because again, you'd like to be accessible. These are your neighbors, theoretically, right? Yeah. That you have some kind of home security system in place or and a big dog and like the police know who you are and know what a SWAT attack is. So that if something like that gets called in, they would know and they wouldn't necessarily come with machine guns to your home in the middle of the night. Yeah. That's good good advice. Go on. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Past that, you're going to see a lot of abuse on social media because obviously the biggest threat is going to be physical security, not because it's most likely to happen, because, because the impact would be the greatest for you. Most likely to happen 
would be that folks would come after you on social media. And so just making sure that it's not easy to hack your accounts is probably going to be one of your best things because you don't want people to see how the sausage gets made, right? You don't want anyone sharing your DMs or your personal emails or any of that. So it's not just your campaign email, it'd be your personal email. And same goes for everybody on your staff, which is a kind of pain in the butt, right? But it's the number one most important thing you can do. A lot of these trolls don't have like the kind of the level of savvy that you'd need to really do a major hack of your system. What happened with the DNC in the summer of 2016 was a nation state. That is something that we often call like a zero day attack, something you've never seen before because it would take too much time and money for just like an average person or group of people to put it together. It would take an entire nation state behind it, right? What you're going to see are people practicing their like password hacking skills. So don't make it too easy for them. Yeah, I think the other part of it is dealing with the vitriol in two ways. So if people decide to come after you on, you know, online stuff and mar your reputation, you're going to need to message your way out of that. There's no technical fix. So like figuring out how to be smart and get ahead of it. And I think that's what 2018 should be about. I'm not sure if we're there yet, but preparing ourselves as politicians and candidates. So understanding how to message around that kind of reputation marring, how to be able to call stuff fake news. So are these trolls coming after you, real people, real constituents? Attribution's hard, but knowing whether they're real or fake isn't that hard. So you can use open source tools to verify the origination of people. There was this dossier I was reading last week. These folks were like, we can't find this guy, or he wrote pieces on both sides of this one candidate, so we think he's a Russian troll. And I was like, well, he said he was from Virginia. This was his name. I just looked him up on like one people search site and there's two of them. And you could just call and ask him because a lot of people made their money writing fake news. In 2016, this guy might just be doing the same. Like just just don't – why would the Russian trolls be interested in a little race in Mississippi? Who cares? You know what I mean? Like it's probably not likely. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. So I've always felt that women in politics are just better at handling those attacks in a diplomatic way, like in ways that aren't career ending. What are your thoughts on that? It's almost like they have a lifetime of experience doing that. (laughs) (laughs) If I can shamelessly plug, you know, this book that I'm writing about perceptions for women, I'm looking at all the different ways that emotional intelligence, the things that we're trained in, because this has nothing to do with how we're born. Sex organs do not create um, emotional intelligence or don't. We're all born with the same amount of, say, empathy. It's just a skill that's been honed more often by women because we're not powerful. So empathy being one of these like pieces of emotional intelligence. It's so interesting to look at how women have different kinds of emotional intelligence that apply super well in situations that just our male counterparts don't have. I'm thinking about in politics, you know, there's all this correlation in the women peace and security movement between women leaders and a decrease, so seeing an increase there and seeing a decrease in violence and conflict, both domestically and internationally, right? And 
you know, I'm thinking about what creates that. It's a correlation in the data, but what is it about having women in political office? And so often women in political office pass legislation for families. It's pejoratively called women's legislation, but it tends to be things like who's going to take care of the kids and what kind of education are they getting and what about healthcare and like all the stuff that you need to be a human and survive. And more often than not, women politicians send more money home to their districts. More often, women will say they run to help do something. And more often, men say they run for political office for their own egos. There, There's that piece. But I think also you look at empathy, and this is something that we lack in the engineering of so many of our social media tools, an inability to understand how other people might feel using our tool. And so even though those budgets have to be huge for user experience, either the data doesn't transmit or they just don't care to do it, or I don't know what's happening, these tools aren't built with any amount of empathy involved and have never been. And that's something, again, that women are amazing at. Yeah. As a cybersecurity, digital security person, what I can say is being a woman running a consulting company and previously a nonprofit that was all around digital security, what we brought to the table was a far more nuanced threat model, threat assessment. I look at these all-dude security teams and I just think, you're already going to be missing at least half of what happens to people unless you're only serving guys like yourselves. So do you think that it's possible to pass legislation that makes these spaces, online spaces specifically, less hostile for women? Absolutely. And we should be. There are a handful of reps from Silicon Valley, from Northern California, who were working on an internet bill of rights. And I would really like to see women's groups involved in that. In fact, I've written the scathing op-ed I have yet to publish. But you can't just go to these digital rights groups that are mostly run by dude or dude adjacent people. It's just they're not looking at free speech from the perspective of of safety. They're looking at it as a given, a constitutional right, an inflexible but absolute thing, right? And anybody who's not a white cis dude and wealthy knows that speech is not an absolute. It is not inflexible. It is absolutely flexible. The tone of your voice and my voice depends on who's in the room, who we're speaking to, how serious we're being, how angry they're getting about our tone. You can't talk to a gay man and say that the tone of his voice doesn't matter. We know that speech isn't an absolute, and those organizations tend to look at it like it's an absolute. So it's difficult because I think we have legislators who are trying to do the right thing but are not going to women's groups, aren't going to like a Black Lives Matter, any kind of consortium around folks of color. They're not talking to folks who are experiencing the Internet as LGBT or, you know, like and especially trans. Like they're just not, they're not, they haven't gotten that far, and I don't know that they will. Klobuchar and Kennedy in the Senate produced a bill that I think was meant to look a little bit more like GDPR, which is, I think they were looking at transparency of data that's gathered about you. I understand that's a great idea, but we don't have an enforcement mechanism. The FTC is not, is not the, enfor- they have no teeth. And so trying to produce something like that without enforcement means that these guys are going to be self-regulating, which they've demonstrated that these guys, meaning these social media platforms and tech companies um, are going to really be self-regulating, which we all know they won't do. They don't do. Right. So I think until we have real teeth, like real enforcement, like a really serious piece of legislation that's I think far reaching that has done the research to engage with groups who've experienced the dystopian side of the internet to wrap it up from the utopia that folks thought we were talking about at the beginning that folks yeah. thought the internet was. We can do this. We just aren't doing it. And um, 
I don't know how much longer we can continue as a society not doing something about this problem. Yeah. Well, do you remember when we were at AWP, this woman from Europe was like, why don't you, why can't you pass this? Why won't you pass it? And I'm like, because Facebook is paying for the campaigns of most of these people on the Hill. Right. Like until there's that campaign finance reform, I don't know that we will have really like toothy legislation. But see, that's where I think more women in power would, would help because Mm -hmm. they, they feel, Mm -hmm. they feel the, the threat online, right? They feel it directly. It doesn't require a bit of empathy. They understand it. Yeah, we understand it. We, you and I may have never been doxxed yet, but that's just it. Like, we know we haven't yet. It could happen anytime. No, you're absolutely right. Like, I, yeah, I, I think about it often. <laughs> yes. Last summer, the Girl Scouts of America came out saying that they were doing this cybersecurity badge and they were doing it with some company, Palo Alto something or other, that was all men. <sighs> And I was like, really? Girl Scouts? Like, and I started this Twitter screed. I was like angry. And so I started <laughs> writing a handful of tweets. And then I thought, well, like, I can't write this until I go home and make sure everybody's okay. Wow. Really? I can't put my family in that kind of jeopardy. Yeah. Because I'm angry about something that's really stupid and deserves to be said. I think most women know how that feels and probably have those thoughts. Now I'm just thinking about everything I've tweeted this week. <laughs> that, that may be fine. You may have a Twitter following that's already used to being really, you know, kind to you. Shana Dillabu, thank you so much for joining me. I've really had fun with this conversation. Same. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of The Electorate. Visit us at electorette.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The Electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorette. And until next time, keep up the good fight.